1: It's a controversial form of ostracism, a tool in bringing down those with power, cancelling. Some see it as accountability and a method of calling attention to long-standing injustice. They say it's always been around. Others see a new, virulent form of mob justice, which jeopardizes a person's safety and risks indefinite alienation. Either way, in this modern era, social media has a decidedly amplifying effect, It's against that background we debate for and against this motion, Cancel Culture is Toxic. Hi everybody, and yes, we are talking about lately what's being called cancel culture. The perception at least, and possibly the reality, that there has been an outbreak of people being punished for the ideas they express through a process of public shaming that is seen to be silencing them, to getting them ejected from positions of prominence, even to ending their careers. There is much disagreement on whether cancel culture is even real or exaggerated or whether it's really something new and whether it is toxic to public discourse or a necessary corrective to have these callouts. Cancel culture on trial. That's our debate. I'm John Donvan and this is Intelligence Squared. All right, everybody, now you have a duty to perform here in this program, and that is to act as the judge of the debate, each one of you. uh, What we would like you to do is to tell us which side you feel argued the best, and we're going to ask you to do that by voting on our motion, Cancel Culture is Toxic, before you've even heard the arguments and then we're gonna ask you to vote after you've heard what everyone has to say. And here at Intelligence Squared, we name as our winner the team whose numbers go up the most in percentage point terms between the first and the second vote. The first vote, it's right now. And here's what we would like you to do. Go to iq2us.org. That's iq2us.org in a web browser. And you will get to a multiple choice field where you will tell us whether you are for, against or undecided on the statement, cancel culture is toxic. I'll give you just one more second to get that first vote in. And now, all right, it is time to meet our debaters. Arguing for the motion, cancel culture is toxic, is Garry Kasparov, Russian chess grandmaster and pro-democracy activist. He is currently chairman of the Human Rights Foundation, a nonprofit that promotes human rights globally. His partner, Camille Foster, a media entrepreneur and political commentator and co-host of the Fifth Column podcast. Foster was one of the signatories of the much-discussed Harper's Letter and its call for free speech and open debate. Opposing them, Karen Atia, a Washington Post columnist who writes on issues related to race, international politics, gender, and human rights. She is author of Say Your Word, Then Leave and was a Fulbright Scholar to Ghana. Her partner, Eric Hatala Mathis, an author and moral philosophy professor at Wellesley College. He is the author of the book Drawing the Line, What to Do with the Work of Immoral Artists from Museums to the Movies. Okay, now here we all are assembled to begin this debate. I just want to say to all four of you, thanks so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right, so let's go into our first round. One is made up of opening statements from each debater in turn. These openings will be four minutes each. Our motion is Cancel Culture is Toxic. And speaking first for the motion, here is Camille Foster. Camille,
2: the screen is yours. Thanks so much, John. And uh, thank you to Intelligence Square for hosting this, I think, very important debate. Uh, I have to begin by making a bit of an awkward uh, admission. Uh, I, I dislike cancel culture, which is probably not surprising in some respects. But I mean, in a very specific sense, I dislike cancel culture because I find the phrase a bit frustrating, It's aesthetically not so satisfying. Um, I think it has almost a satirical quality to it. It kind of conjures these images of mean girls, of people engaging in these rather trivial social media cyberbullying. But what we're talking about here is a fair bit more serious um, and sinister than that. It is a dynamic that is a real um, and in many respects uh, definable and easily discernible aspect of American society, of American politics, and of American culture. Um, And it is having a meaningful impact on how our institutions operate, on our relationship to truth, and on core philosophical ideals and values like free speech and free inquiry that are indispensable for our social project, regardless of what values people think they're defending when they participate in these mobbings. Um, Now, I've been participating in these conversations in one respect or another um, for a very long time. Um, And I'm pleased that we've gotten beyond the point where we have to debate whether or not cancel culture is a thing at all. Um, We do know that cancel culture is real. Most Americans recognize that in numerous polls and surveys uh, from across the ideological spectrum and numerous media organizations have confirmed as much. Um, And to, to kind of operate in the universe of definitions briefly, cancel culture is a dynamic where various tactics are used and I would say abused for the purposes of exercising social power to silence debate. Um, Often this is fueled by social media controversies um, and takes place on social media platforms, but it's hardly limited to that medium. Um, Again, these campaigns are consequential um, and they're also, yes, toxic. Um, The campaigns are also swift uh, they're generally incurious um, and they're often brutally unforgiving uh, there is generally not an opportunity for people who are accused to kind of appeal to evidence to to muster any sort of defense for themselves um, and the dynamics that facilitate the social intimidation that's used to to fuel these campaigns um, often intimidate even their friends their co-workers their family members from speaking out publicly uh, for fear that they'll receive the same sort of treatment. Um, In a nutshell, what cancel culture does um, is it paralyzes the free flow of ideas and information um, that goes against particular ideological dogmas. Um, It is an attempt to win arguments, not by engaging with the substance of what's on offer, but by making debate completely impossible, by essentially pulling out the rug from underneath your opponent. Uh, And this is distressingly uh, something that, again, numerous polls have suggested is very real. Um, And the the belief that it is real amongst the public is something that transcends partisan and ideological uh, boundaries. Even amongst Democrats who identify as somewhat liberal and very liberal, um, it is not so much that a majority, but a very uncertain (laughs) majority might say that they don't believe cancel culture is a fear problem, but as many as 41% uh, by some measures um, indicate that they do believe that this is a problem, that they do feel that they have to shield their political values, their views in certain cases for fear that they might be punished in some way. Um, and nearly a third of these same kinds of people suggest that they fear that they might lose their jobs as a result of this.
1: Thank you very much, Camille Foster, and that is your opening statement. Our next statement will be against the resolution that cancel culture is toxic. Here is Eric Hatala Mathis. Eric, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, John, and uh,
3: thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting uh, this important debate. Uh, I'm glad to be here arguing against this resolution. So I'm gonna sort of lay out the framework of our argument, and then Karen will be filling in with some cases and details and further considerations. So when we think about a resolution like this, cancel culture is toxic, we need to be really clear about the meaning of the key terms in order to be in a position to evaluate the resolution. So toxic, that's not very controversial, but it's worth being explicit. Something that's toxic is pervasively harmful, so harmful in a widespread way. Cancel culture, on the other hand, much more controversial, and we're going to argue that There is no clear and consistent definition of cancel culture that one can demonstrate is, in fact, pervasively harmful. That's our position. So what might cancel culture be? So you might think that cancel culture is constituted by public shaming, largely on the Internet. But in a political culture where we have normalized expressions of prejudice and bigotry, not arguments necessarily, Public shaming is a perfectly legitimate response, right, as a means of engaging in social resistance against those expressions. Moreover, right, as we've seen when people engage in critiques of cancel culture that are based on a commitment to freedom of speech, right, these acts of, you know, so-called public shaming, I would say social resistance, are themselves just more speech. So that seems like an inconsistency in the other side's argument. Now, you might say that cancel culture isn't just about public shaming, it's also about the loss of jobs or opportunities, the function of that public shaming. But in fact, it seems like cases where people do lose their jobs as a function of being canceled are vanishingly small. And indeed, it seems like often it's more likely that people uh, acquire new opportunities as a function of being canceled, speaking opportunities, book deals, et cetera. So it's really hard to see how the claim that being canceled is harmful uh, is supposed to um, be be, uh, established. Moreover, you know, I think there's an inconsistency in the way that critics of cancel culture talk about what counts as cancel culture. So there are A range of cases where we do see people losing jobs or opportunities, but conveniently, these seem to not be part of what critics typically think of as cancel culture when they're criticizing it. So you think of, you know, Hannah Nicole Jones or even Colin Kaepernick, um, you know, people who have lost jobs or opportunities because of political stances. uh, And yet those cases don't count as part of cancel culture, according to most of cancel culture's critics. Right. So that, again, seems like an inconsistency in how we're thinking about what cancel culture is. So those are three reasons, I think, to reject this resolution, because it doesn't seem like there is a clear and consistent definition of cancel culture that we can demonstrably show is, in fact, pervasively harmful. I think that's really all of our all our side needs to show. But I think that we can do you one better. I think that we can show not only that this resolution is false. But the resolution itself is toxic. This idea that cancel culture uh, is out there and is harming people is a shield that people in positions of power use to try to avoid reasonable critique of things that they do and that they say. Right? And the fact like, that Camille mentioned that so many people believe that cancel culture exists is really just a function of the way in which media attention has put it out there as this specter, right? And then people in positions of power hide behind it. So I think that you should vote against this resolution because it is both false and itself harmful. Thanks.
1: You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, non-profit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligentsquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides of every issue. More debate when we return. Welcome back, I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. Thank you very much, Eric Hetala Mathis. And here's where you are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Speaking next in support of the motion that cancel culture is toxic, here is Gary Kasparov. Gary, the screen is all
4: yours. We are gathered um, if uh, virtually to uh, debate a vital topic uh, in the world where freedom is on the run, on the decline. Um, Just a few short decades ago, liberal democracy for all uh, was considered inevitable. The Iron Curtain fell, the Soviet Union collapsed, and trust me, it it felt much better for those of us on the other side. Uh, The old Soviet joke went, in the Soviet Union, we have freedom of speech. But in the United States, they also have freedom after speech. All these freedoms we're envied of are now under threat everywhere, including the United States, still the freest country in the world. And most troubling, many threats are against uh, the institutions that are so essential to protecting intellectual freedom. Schools and universities are where we most need to challenge and be challenged. But how can we learn what's right if we are afraid uh, to ever be wrong? Um, Well, increasingly you hear, oh, we'll tell you what's right and good. But it uh, reminds me too much of the ideological education I grew up with back then in the Soviet Union. You disagreed, you were wrong. You were wrong too loudly, you were silenced. The good news is that the United States is not Russia or the Soviet Union. No one is going to be sent to Gulag uh, for failing to draw the line. But just because there's no party with capital P does not mean um, there is no party line. There's still not, no, no Big Brother yet, but uh, uh, the effectiveness of the modern platforms like Twitter and Facebook um, to um, stifle the debate. So it's, uh, it's uh, um, enabling uh, um, online mobs, you know, uh, creates a threat, the threat to the free flow of ideas that um, are silenced by um, uh, socially un- unchallengeable, uh, um, uh, views. Um, in our uh, um, Renew Democracy Initiative project, dissidents from around the world shared uh, their alarm uh, about how the United States is suppressing the very freedoms they're fighting for in, in their um, uh, home countries. The United States. Uh, Mm, uh, today, So as is pointed out by the activists from China to Belarus, to Zimbabwe, to Venezuela, to uh, Cuba, to Iran. Uh, so it's um, creating an uh, uh, intellectual environment uh, that is closing in a way so painfully familiar uh, to, to, these, to these activists. And these attitudes are toxic at any, any dosage. So our best defense is the values of the free world and protecting these values. Um, It doesn't mean putting up with intolerance or um, promoting hatred. Uh, So it doesn't require courage. The courage to defend um, the views and rights of those who you you don't agree with. Uh, The response, our response, must be more openness, more debate, more freedom. And today you can do your part by voting in favor, voting for intellectual freedom and against toxic spread of, um, of intolerance um, and uh, groupthink and ideological purity tests.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Gary Kasparov. And our final speaker in this opening round will be speaking against the resolution that cancel culture is toxic. Here is Karen Atia. Karen, the screen is yours.
5: Thanks so much. Um, and thank you for having me. Uh, yes, again, I would like to advocate in advance for why audiences should vote no against this resolution. I would uh, back up my teammate Eric and say I still see that our opponents again, well, our friends but for today opponents have not convincingly provided Concrete evidence and concrete proof that a that this is a pervasive part of American culture, and b that this is toxic, or implying that this is infecting our culture so much that our entire society is unraveling, that this is a danger of unraveling the American project itself. Now, again, I'm a member of the media, and I will admit that the media we tend to focus on powerful and prominent people who complain that their views are being challenged, who complain that their book deals and that. uh, uh, and that their sponsorship deals and that their comedy specials are being protested. And we tend to focus on um, a small, very vocal, very prominent people who complain about this. Um, but again, I think we should take a step back. I was just looking at a Gallup poll from last month about what most Americans see as their top important problem in America. And most of them did cite, and uh, 21% or so, cited the C word as their top priority. And you know what that C word was? That was coronavirus, an actual disease that is actually threatening the well-being and the stability of this country. I even tried to be generous and tried to look for anything that could look at uh, proxy to, to cancel culture. I looked at maybe... Free speech concerns, were they there? Censorship concerns, were they there? They were not. Most Americans outside of our blue check brigade, outside of our elite bubbles, um, and I think we can say we're, we're part of a certain uh, elite bubble of, of Americans, um, most of them are worried about just their day-to-day uh, lives. And um, and those who are not sitting on Twitter day are just not. So, again, um, it's really for us to say, is this really unraveling American um, American culture? And in reality, the ones who seem to claim the most that they've been canceled again, um, are they really buried? Woody Allen, take him. He's still got his book deal. Bill Cosby hmm, convicted of sexual assault that was overturned. Or even the uh, the bad boy today, uh, Dave Chappelle, who's a, now a subject of uh, into these cancel culture wars. He's still, he's rich, he's still famous, and Netflix is still standing behind him on uh, a $24 million uh, deal. So right now, the moment that we are in, what we're, not, what we're talking about is not so much cancel culture, which again, mind you, originated from Black communities who were using whatever power of shaming that they had to call out harmful, toxic behavior towards them as a group group is now being used as a pejorative. I do not see it as a coincidence that cancel culture is now being somewhat turned against uh, marginalized communities as a way to stifle what is actually happening, which is actually the opening of space. We have more voices than ever before, Latinx voices, non-binary voices, transgender voices, who are now speaking and who are now speaking out against Those systems and those who perpetuate the systems that have long participated in what I would say is erasure culture, which has led to generational wealth being disappeared, what has led to um, literally uh, incarceration, what has led to a deep systemic continued erasure. Um, And I would say this is the same for uh, women in, in Me Too. So it's not an accident to me that this. Um supposed bogeyman a uh, cancel culture is really um status anxiety is discomfort at the fact that there's more voices. It's discomfort at the fact that the gatekeepers are now saying seeing that they could be outside the gates of privilege and power. Now, again, I think this is the reason why we should vote against the resolution because what we're debating at all, lives of the marginalized should never be debated, but what I think we should embrace is a culture of what's happening and which is that there's more debate, more voices, and more people who are being moved to the center um, of of, uh, American democracy and discourse.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen Atia. And that concludes round one of our Intelligence Squared US debate, where our resolution is cancel culture is toxic. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters have a conversation, address one another directly, and also take some questions from me. But just in terms of what I'm hearing, the team arguing for the motion that cancel culture is toxic are talking about a situation, a dynamic that they consider frightening and widespread in which people with uh, holding certain views that are not considered acceptable by others are facing a kind of punitive uh, process of shaming that has real consequences. Uh, Among those consequences, I think they're saying that there's a tendency for for a chilling effect on and uh, dialogue and discourse in general, uh, that would, that means that only one view will ultimately, um, dominate and that it's shutting down the spirit of inquiry and free speech that they say is essential to the, uh, to, to, to the American project. The team arguing against the resolution are arguing a few different things. One, that they question whether cancel culture as expressed by their opponents is really real. Um, if, even if it's real in tiny doses, they, they argue that it's, it's not, uh, deep and it's not pervasive that in fact, the calling out that happens can actually be beneficial. And they make the argument that those who are citing cancel culture in a derogatory, pejorative way are using it as a shield to defend themselves against criticism that they don't like hearing. So I want to go uh, to you, Camille Foster, first and say that that this question um, of uh, the cancel culture claim being a shield uh, that your opponent, Eric, raised, um, that he's questioning... Whether the whole phenomenon, the whole dynamic, is as a, is a deep, widespread, and um, um, as toxic as the resolution implies, and kind of accuses your side of playing a double game of not only challenging cancel culture but using the term to um, to protect against criticism that you don't you your one doesn't like to hear those who are citing it. So I'd like you to take on that 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 description of what it means for you to be arguing that cancel culture is
2: toxic. Yeah, I think uh, Eric made a number of rather dubious claims, frankly. Uh, First, the assertion that cancel culture is difficult to define and thus because of its nebulous qualities should be dismissed out of hand, um, I think is rather absurd. Love, hate, freedom, various other things that no one would dispute exist um, are all somewhat difficult to define, um, but again, nevertheless exist and have real and profound consequences in the world. Um, I think the fact that polling consistently has demonstrated that people believe cancel culture that is there, whether one believes that is a result of the media um, sensationalizing or because of realities that they experience in their everyday lives, actually illustrates our point. The question of how toxic this is, how bad this is, um, is an important one. But I would actually like to posit another question. Is it possible that in pursuit of some just ends, one might overcorrect, that one might imperil particular values. It is another demonstrated reality that surveys suggest repeatedly that an increasing number of Americans think there should be curtailment of free speech for the purposes of protecting certain classes of citizens. That is a real dynamic that's happening. It's something that is playing out in the polling and can't be dismissed um, in, a, in an arbitrary fashion. Um, I think you have a difficult circumstance for yourself when you're both Simultaneously suggesting that something like, is being inconsistently applied because certain, cer- certain cancellations on the left perhaps aren't being called out by some hypocritical conservatives. Um, I would submit to you that the hypocrisy is real and so are the cancellations. And whether or not the consequences of these cancellations are devastating for particular in- individuals, that's a complicated story. The reality is beyond someone who actually has their lives disrupted by a cancellation there is a universe of people who stay silent because they fear cancellation, and that is the dynamic we're concerned about.
1: So, Eric, um, Eric Mathis, um what's your response to what you heard from uh, Camille on that? Well, I mean, on the one hand, I'm happy for uh, to hear
3: Camille say that, like he wants to include right a sort of like a broader set. Of uh, responses um, to people's actions in you know, this supposed cancel culture umbrella. So at least where you can sort of like remove right, the inconsistency which you see in a lot of the criticisms of cancel culture, where they don't include right, any ways in which people are um, uh, subject to reprisal when their views are more on the, on the political left. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the challenges that we confront here, um, and I think you see this in some of the comments that Gary made, uh, in his opening is we have sort of a general conflation of a bunch of different ideas. And this is really what I was getting at when I said, there's no clear and consistent understanding of culture, cancel culture at play. So like on the one hand, we have things like, you know, uh, the sort of online response to things that people say, right. And the other hand, you know, Gary's talking about like state-sanctioned suppression, right? Those are totally different things, right? And so like, when we have such an ambiguous set of things that we're supposed to be saying like, oh, this whole thing right, is toxic, I think it sort of undermines the force of the point. I completely agree with you that state-sanctioned suppression is a bad thing. That is toxic. But I just don't think that's what we're talking about when we're usually talking about cancel culture.
4: I I quickly look at my notes and I didn't recall that I ever said something about uh, state oppression or central authority in the United States. Of course, I cited my Soviet experience uh, and and, uh, I um, tried to um, share the concerns of dozens and dozens of prominent dissidents around the world who are really, you know, alarmed by this development in the United States, Uh, and you're talking about people who experienced um, the the attacks on on individual freedoms, and especially on freedom of speech, in their countries, just across across the globe. Uh, Of course, America is far from being there, and that's what I said, but we have instruments like Twitter and Facebook and all the social media that allows the mobilization of online mob. That attacks people, and uh, while Karen said, "Oh, well, it's the Dave Chappelle is still there," or uh, J.K. Rowling, yes, that's too big, so that is too big to be cancelled. But the effect it has on millions of others who saw that even these giants can be under attack. So, and uh, and uh, Camille uh, quoted a few few polls that that indicated and demonstrated that more than half of the Americans, you know, really concerned about, you know, what would be the consequences of them exercising their rights of this free speech? Karen, do you want to jump in?
5: Yeah, again, I, I, I just see a conflation of a whole bunch of different points. One thing I would point out, as the sole woman on this panel, I also look at, I find it interesting to see when these terms woke Cancel culture enter our consciousness. And to me, it seems cancel culture seemed to really enter the consciousness after the Me Too movement. And I remember a lot of men, especially sitting on their really worried that maybe they would be canceled too, like Harvey Weinstein, because now women were speaking up or speaking out and we're calling for accountability and we're calling for consequences. And I think ultimately, Ultimately, what people, what women in particular, were calling for was for a reform of how we treat, treat us and how we treat each other in this, in this system. So I think to a certain extent, it's A, it goes back to my point, which is I was trying to make um, when. When uh, cancel culture enters the lexicon, when woke enters the lexicon, after you know the power and the force of, of black uh, voices, of black protest, now we're seeing you know CRT. I just look at the fear of cancel culture being this pervasive thing. Um, I, I and I, I actually do think that men, people in power, um, I actually do think there is a discomfort. Is that toxic? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think it's uncomfortable and I can see that and I can acknowledge that. But what is more uncomfortable and more toxic? Women, black people, people of color who've been marginalized for a long time, who've had their careers destroyed by those who've used their power, who've used the systems to silence women, to use NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, to use lawsuits, to use threats, actual physical threats of violence against those who do not have the power of the system to work for them. So I, you know, I, I look at this and I, I'm kind of like the whole thing is sort of disingenuous because it's just really interesting who the groups that perpetuate, you know, woke is being pejorative, cancel culture is being pejorative. And I would just, um, again, like to say, I don't think we have a very, we, we can talk about Digital culture and bots, online harassment, I've been a victim of that. Um, I've seen that and I've, I've seen that. However, I still speak and I still write and there are plenty who still uh, choose to do so. Um, does it make it that we're in a new environment? Yes. Um, but I actually embrace the culture that we're in right now because, again, more voices are involved. There is actually less canceling in some ways going on. Um, there's there's less erasure, there's more visibility, and so to try to dismiss that by by saying, oh, we're afraid of the new voices, mm, maybe you should reconsider uh, uh, reconsider whether or not maybe public discourse is your thing.
1: I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate.
2: Well, I wonder if I could interject something, Karen, because it, it seems that, you know, one of the accusations that was leveled at our side is that, you know, we have this rather nebulous definition and it's hard to prove. Um, an assertion is continually made on the other side um, that... Minorities are being sort of disempowered. That the motivation for people who are concerned about cancel culture is that they, that they are afraid of losing control, that they want to sort of disempower women who are raising legitimate concerns about being mistreated. Um, I think it's worth noting that the same polling does, in fact, break out certain demographic groups. That when asked, does the political climate these days prevent me from saying things I believe? Um, 49% of African-American respondents said that they agreed with that sentiment. 65% of Latino respondents said they agreed with that sentiment. 65% of Asian respondents said they agreed with that sentiment. Um, And while men certainly do get a bit higher in terms of 65% of men, 59% of women seem to agree with that sentiment. I I think it's disingenuous to insist that the people who are raising these concerns don't share a number of the social justice related and certainly criminal justice reform issues that have been brought to the fore since the summer of last year when I signed the Harper's Letter. And I did so alongside more than 150 prominent academics and social commentators and creatives and entrepreneurs, all of whom are well to the left of me, (laughs) all of whom expressed a tremendous amount of sympathy for and support for the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, And generally, myself personally, I've advocated, I've spent hundreds of hours personally working on issues of criminal justice reform. And my company, Freethink, publishes on this constantly. I would submit to you that if we are raising concern about this in that context, that there is perhaps a legitimate concern that ought to be taken seriously. And to use a word that used a moment ago, not dismissed. I do not dismiss legitimate concerns about policing, about social justice. My concern is that a world where we are fighting those battles by purging people from our polite society and by preventing them from having an ability to sort of make arguments in certain contexts is disadvantageous to minority groups who want to feel protected.
5: But Camille, is that really happening? Come on. I mean, in this sense of, and I'll, I'll, I remember the Harper's letter and, and, and had thoughts about it. But the thoughts I would say now is it's not even so much a right-left issue. It's not so much, uh, you know, I have a lefty friend who agrees. That Harper's letter, and, and I, I would say, you know, all of us in this room, we belong to a certain class that has visibility, that has prominence, that has power, that has platforms. Right, um, the fact that you're able to come um, back on this platform, and I feel like uh, you know that we're able to um, to speak about that is is means that it it belongs to a certain again group, and we belong to a, a certain power structure that does have the power to uh, to shape a discourse and to into and shape thought.
1: I want to bring Eric and, and Gary back into the conversation a little bit more, and I I, I want to do that, Eric, by taking to you that the 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 sort of pushback from previously marginalized communities is actually kind of a social good that that the, that now communities that didn't have a voice and could not stand up to people who are complaining about cancel culture now can but i'm wondering what the goal is is the goal merely to be heard or is the goal of pushing back to silence the other side, to punish the other side, to remove the other side from positions of power. Because that's what your opponents I think are saying cancel culture is about. It's not just having an opposing point of view and being heard. They're complaining that you're that that the that the that it's a power play again similar to the Soviet Union to silence the views that they don't want to have out there and to punish those who hold those views. I want to ask you is that you know is that an accurate description of the motivation of people who are pushing back against those in power by calling them out?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question, John. I mean, I, of course, can't speak to the motivations of anybody who participates in social activism uh, that might be lumped into this cancel culture umbrella. I think that a lot of people who get, um, you know, pegged with this cancel culture label are really looking for institutional reform, uh, and they're doing that, right, via, right, protesting uh, or, or calling out behavior of particular individuals. I think that there are occasions when the sort of focus on the speech of particular individuals can actually be a bit of a distraction from those more institutional aims. But I think if you really pay attention to what activists are saying, that's what they want, right? So to like go back to this recent Chappelle case, right? So like Dave Chappelle is like out there being like, oh, I'm being canceled, but who lost their job, right? the trans employee at netflix who helped to organize right the walkout in protest is the one who lost their job and they published an op-ed in the washington post where they said explicitly they were like I'm not trying to cancel Dave Chappelle. We're talking about working towards changes at this institution, right? That they work at. And I think that's really ultimately what uh, a lot of activism, activism is geared towards is sort of making changes at the institutional level. They're going to influence what we are ultimately exposed to. Critics of cancel culture focus a lot on the sort of after the fact, right? Like what's the response to speech? But that just obscures the many ways in which people are canceled right, before the fact uh, because of the way that our institutions are set up. Right. So, you know, Karen was talking about publishing. Right. The publishing industry is 82 percent white that's going to affect the kind of content that gets produced, right? So what are people really agitating for? I think they're agitating for institutional reform that's going to yield a more diverse set of voices without some being pushed to the top where they need
4: to sometimes be protested against.
1: Uh, Gary, I just want you you to jump into the conversation with what you're thinking.
4: Yes, our opponents are just trying just to push the debate so just in, in the opposite direction, you know? you know, I, I'm, I'm still struggling to understand the, the, how coherent this arguments, but basically they try to politicize everything and pretend that, you know, the cancel culture is an invention of those who are trying to stay in power. Camille responded that uh, 99% of those who signed the Harper letter, you know, they were on the left of the political center. And uh, they probably do not uh, um, differ very much with, with Eric and, 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 and Karen on, on many political issues, but they expressed concern about the threat an explicit threat to, uh, to uh, the freedom of speech. One of, by the way, signatories was, was J.K. Rowling, who was immediately attacked. And that's classic, you know, that this is the way that, that this, the cancel culture operates. It's not about the content, but it's about an individual.
1: This concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is cancel culture is toxic. So here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. These statements will be two minutes each and it's their last chance to try to change your minds because right after this, we're gonna ask you to vote for that second time. So here making his final statement in support of the motion, cancel culture
2: is toxic. Here is Camille Foster. Well, thank you for that, John. Um, I'm going to deviate from my planned comments here. I, I think what's really important to underscore is that when we talk about a culture of free speech, as opposed to the legal protections that are afforded to all Americans by the Constitution, protecting them from the government interfering with their ability to speak, this culture of free speech is something that directly relates to our ability to engage in civil discourse, to have open dialogue, to debate important issues. It, it actually creates opportunities for minority viewpoints to be expressed in public. It is part of the framework that had allowed for the robust activism um, of the civil rights uh, movement. We know that when people were engaged in things like, say, a, a boy counter, a, 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 a counter um, demonstration where they came and they sat in at some sort of dining establishment that had been previously discriminatory, their goal was very simple. They wanted to be included. They didn't want to be forcefully excluded from different environments on account of their race. They achieved their goal and they used that culture and those tools. And that is precisely what I am most concerned about and what Gary is most concerned about and what so many people who were worried about cancel culture are concerned about. Our cultural willingness to engage with ideas that are not our own, our willingness to forcefully rebut when necessary, but also to explore possibilities that exist amongst people who we may not interact with on a regular basis. On university campuses in particular, this manifests itself in a number of pernicious ways. You have publication bias, a very real phenomenon where people won't even ask particular questions if they fear that they run afoul of some sort of sacred zeitgeist. We don't need dogmas. What we need is a culture of free speech that values genuine inclusiveness and that puts the hard work of confronting bad ideas where it belongs, with us.
1: Thank you, Camille Foster. And next up to be making an argument, his closing argument against the resolution that cancel culture is toxic. Here is Eric Hatala Mathis.
3: So I'm going to tell a quick story that I think illustrates the arguments that we've been making today. Um, The French painter, uh, Paul Gauguin, uh, engaged in sexual abuse of Tahitian girls. Uh, And so some people in uh, responding to those facts have argued that we need to do a better job of contextualizing his work in museums, right? We need to be honest about the things that he did and their relevance to our understanding of his work. So the New York Times ran an article about this a couple of years ago. And that very point is the most critical point that was made in the article, right? That we shouldn't take Gauguin's paintings down, but they should, we should take his actions seriously Right? and contextualize the work. What was the article titled? Is it time Gauguin got canceled? So this is just a perfect illustration of the way in which the specter of cancel culture is used to obscure attention from the very legitimate and plausible criticisms that people sometimes make in response right, to uh, immoral phenomenon. And if you're not very right, particularly compelled by cases about the arts, right? consider that on the heels of the insurrection uh, at the Capitol on January 6th, When people were critical of the fact that the then president Donald Trump was not taking a stronger stand against the insurrection, Representative Jim Jordan said, oh, people are trying to cancel him. That's what the idea of cancel culture ends up doing. It functions as a shield so that people can try to avoid legitimate criticism. And that is why you should vote against this resolution.
1: Thank you very much, Eric. And here to make his final argument in a closing statement, in support of the motion cancel culture is toxic, Gary Kasparov.
4: As the same goes, the solution for the problems with free speech is just bringing more free speech. Terrible ideas can and should be confronted without promoting those who hold them. People should be held accountable, but they should not be held hostage. I'm not afraid for myself. I've faced real mobs, not just Twitter mobs. I've had my Russian website banned in Putin's Russia, my offices raided, my friends and colleagues beaten, jailed, or worse. The victims of cancel culture are not multimillionaire authors or famous comedians, Uh, but seeing them attacked so viciously sends a clear message to those who do not have their protections and advantages. The real victims are the same people who always suffer most when fundamental rights come under attack. They will stay quiet and even paralyzed while the powerful and entitled get louder. That is real, that is dangerous, and that is toxic. And Meanwhile, we are debating here, all debating here, And it's privilege. And uh, I doubt that any one of us would like to live in a world where it uh, couldn't happen. Uh, In a world where we um, could be scared for our career or for our families because we might say something uh, tonight. Uh, I have lived already in two of these worlds. And I'm here arguing because I don't want to live in the third. And I urge you to support the proposition Uh, so my American-born kids do not repeat the experience of their Soviet-born father. Thank you. Thank you very much,
1: Gary Kasparov. And finally, with our last argument, it will be against the resolution that cancel culture is toxic. Here is, please, Karen Atia.
5: Thanks so much. Um, again, I would like to urge audiences to vote no against, uh, this resolution, uh, cancel culture being toxic. Um, our, our opponents have made all sorts of, uh, of statements and all sorts of, of expressed their fears about a supposed very, very evil and dark turn that the U.S. is is going um, down. But uh, so far have not, have we've come full circle on just, uh, it's a mishmash of ideas about what cancel culture really is. And I would propose a different way to look at what's really happening. And what is really happening is a cultural shift on multiple levels, on multiple fronts. And what is happening is cultural shifts have always been uncomfortable. Norms changing have always been uncomfortable. Generational divides and differences have always been uncomfortable. And I think what is happening is that um, the, the, the blinds are being taken off of so many people, um, who have long been, uh, subjected to, frankly, erasure, um, by this, uh, by, by our society. And so what I would say is that we're actually not in a moment of, of, Deep, deep toxicity or polarization. What is actually happening is that we are having more speech and there is more visibility and more healing and we're inching towards justice. And I actually fear that when these uh, trends of cancel culture and wokeism and social justice warriors, what that actually is, is um, backlash to the progress that has been made, backlash to the progress that Me Too made, backlash to the progress that Black Lives Matters made, backlash to the progress that trans and LGBT people have made in making themselves a little bit, just a little bit more of the center than they were before. And it's just unfortunate that them making themselves a little bit more of the center causes fear and status anxiety in those who've long had power. I think we are in a better place and this new culture of inclusivity, this new culture of justice is one that I believe we should fully embrace, not see as toxic, but more see as us, as a society, trying to live up to to our ideals.
1: Thank you, Karen Atia, and thank you to all of our debaters, because that concludes the final round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. All right, everybody, it's now time for our second vote, and remember, it's the side that changes the most minds between the first and the second vote that will be declared our winner. Uh, We're going to do this as the same way as before. We'd like you to go back to iq2us.org, iq2us.org, and there you will get the same choices. To say that you are for, against, or undecided the statement that cancel culture is toxic. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we're keeping this vote open for seven days. And at the end of those seven days, we will announce a winner on our website, iq2us.org. With that said, I want to say something to all four debaters. It was clear that you um, had some very sharp disagreements about the, 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 the both the, 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 the statement, the debate itself, the nuances, etc. But uh, what what you all did, the way in which you brought you you argued, all of you you know honestly without cynicism, um, with with facts, with examples, and most of all, I think with respect for one another, uh, that was that just came through. It's really really what we aim for at Intelligence Squared. So thank you from me and from all of us at Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And and now that the competition is over, I would like to say all of you who who are joining us um, that this really has been a good debate and the topic is extremely important and in addition to thanking our debaters i want to thank all of you for tuning in we really appreciate your interest in this and what we do uh we've been now doing this for many years where we've done more than 200 debates at this level uh we appreciate your support and your commitment and as i say at the end of every debate we're a nonprofit. we rely on the support of the public to keep this going so if you would like to support us um we we would love it and you can do that by going to iq2us.org, and there's going to be a chance there for you to donate to keep this going. We, we put it out to the world for free. Uh, it's used in schools uh, around the country, at the high school level, even the elementary school level, and certainly at the college level. So uh, you'll be taking part in an educational endeavor if you support us. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Don that.